You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. It was almost 43 years ago uh, today, August of 1980, that Willie Nelson released the hit song, On the Road Again. Of course, you don't know that song because you're Christians and (laughs) you only listen to worship music from the 80s. But uh, Willie Nelson did write that song actually for a movie that he starred in as well called Honeysuckle Rose, which uh, really captured, I think, the heart of the main character, a country singer uh, by the name of Buck Bonham, who, though he was married and had a family, loved to be on the road playing music. It's a classic song. It's a line that that really struck me this week as I was thinking about this message, this passage that we're going to be covering. Um, As I'm thinking through the missionary journey of Paul in general, the line goes like this. He says, and I can't wait to get on the road again, going places that I've never been, seeing things that I may never see again, and I can't wait to get on the road again. We're back for week three of the ultimate road trip where we join Paul and his coworker Silas on the road again. And we're gonna go places we've never been and see things we may never see again this morning. We begin our time in Acts 16. So if you have your Bible and like to turn to follow along, Acts 16 is where you need to go. At this point in the story, Paul and Barnabas have parted ways to go and do missions separate from each other. If you remember all the way back in week one, just a few weeks ago, when Paul and Barnabas returned from Jerusalem from making the offering to the church there in Jerusalem, they came back to Antioch in Syria, and they were accompanied by a young man named John Mark, who left with them and went to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from, to do missions as sort of an assistant to the two missionaries. And then last week, you might recall, after they left Cyprus, they went to Perga, which is in Pamphylia, and verse 13 said, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, I just sort of skipped over that because I knew I was going to be dealing with this week, but we we don't really know why this took place. John suddenly leaves. It may have been a legitimate reason. It may have been that he just wasn't cut out for missions. We really don't know. Whatever the reason was, Paul did not agree with it. He didn't like it. We know that because after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are ready to go on mission again. And Acts 15, verses 37 through 38 says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul was like, I'm not taking him with us. He doesn't work. He's probably a millennial. I'm not taking him because he deserted us last time in the middle of the mission. Verse 39 says that this created a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, so much so that they separated from each other. The result of this, verse 39 and 40, says Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Sometimes godly men who are equally called to ministry who are leaders in their own way, who are influential in the ministries that they conduct, disagree with one another. Sometimes godly men come to impasses that force them to continue to do the work that God has called them to do in their individual lives, but to do it separately from one another. And the interesting thing about this one in particular is that it seems like 
in the end, the Apostle Paul is the one who was wrong. Barnabas continued on with John Mark. He mentored him. Of course, Mark was his cousin. They were, they were family. And so he continued to invest in John Mark and, until uh, John Mark was, was sort of brought into maturity, so much so that later in Paul's ministry, he recognizes this. He says in one of his last letters that he writes before he's martyred in Rome, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He also mentions him in Colossians 4.10. He, he says that if John Mark comes to you, welcome him. He is a good worker, a good cause for the gospel. If he comes to you, welcome him, care for him. John Mark grew up apparently. He grew into maturity. He grew into the calling that God had on his life, and Paul recognized it. It also seems that this rift between Paul and Barnabas mended itself. It was not final. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul references Barnabas in a very friendly manner. So it, in, it indicates that after this separation, they somehow mended and began to continue to have a, a sort of you know, good charity towards one another in the gospel work that they were doing. I point this out for a couple of reasons. One is that our passage begins this morning in Acts 16, and it's no longer Paul and Barnabas who are on mission together, but Paul and Silas, and you need to know why. You need to know what took place there. There's some context there that's missing that's important for you to understand how this whole thing unfolded. But number two, and I think especially important for this morning's message, is to point out the humanity of these men. It is very easy to deify Paul. It's very easy to think of Paul uh, as something greater than human. He's an apostle. He performs signs and wonders and miracles. He exercises demons. He wrote practically half of the New Testament. He seems almost godlike sometimes, does he not? And that's not just my opinion. That's what people thought in the book of Acts. After a miracle that he performs in Acts 14, it says in verses 11 and 12, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. They thought they were Greek gods. No men can do these things. They must be gods. Paul says in return in verse 15, why are you saying this? He says, we also are men of like nature with you. But it is, it's easy to think of Paul in this sort of larger than life capacity. And in this rift between him and Barnabas, we get a glimpse of his humanity. He did not give John Mark a second chance. He was willing to depart from the faithful Barnabas as a result of his desire for John Mark to come alongside. And he was wrong for it. He was fallible. Sometimes godly men make mistakes. Sometimes pastors make mistakes. We are human, just like anyone else. We're frail, we're broken, we need Jesus just as much as you do, probably more, if we're being honest, because we signed up for this crazy thing that we call ministry. With that said, we come to Acts 16, we find Paul and Silas on the road again, and it is a really an interesting beginning of their trip. They plan to go one place, they end up going to a totally different place because their navigation system redirects them. Their navigation system, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They were like pulling into Asia, and the Holy Spirit was like, keep moving. You're not speaking the gospel here. 
That's strike one. Verse seven, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Strike two, keep on going, guys. You're not stopping here. I've got a different plan for you, a different purpose for you, a different mission for you. Keep sailing. They eventually come to Macedonia into a city called Philippi, the city in which the church of the Philippians existed. The letter to the Philippians is a letter Paul wrote to the believers there in Philippi, a place that he went and did ministry during the second missionary journey. And it is there that they meet a a young woman named Lydia who believes the gospel. Her household is born again, and she opens her home up to the apostles to stay there and do ministry there while they are in Philippi, a a Greco-Roman, Greek-speaking woman who comes to faith and becomes a sort of hub for the apostles and missionaries to stay at while they are doing gospel ministry. And that is where our story begins when they are with Lydia in her home, and it begins in a rather shocking manner with a demonic encounter. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Pause for a moment. This should be a red flag immediately, right? There's a slave girl who practices divination so well that she is making a pretty handsome earning off of it. Her owners are getting rich from her ability to do fortune telling. So it must have been pretty convincing. Continue in verse 17. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And there's a lot to unpack here. Let me say up front, and I hope this is not shocking to anyone here, that we believe that demons are real. They are real. They are not a figment of one's imagination. They are not a contrivance of the ancient world who was unable to, to, to figure out what mental illness looks like. They're real. They're sentient beings. They have actual power that when they encounter, influence, or heaven, heaven forbid, possess an individual, the individuals seem to have unnatural or supernatural abilities as a result of it. They're mentioned in the Old Testament many times. In fact, uh, the the Old Testament refers to them as the underlying power behind the false gods worshipped in surrounding nations around Israel. They're mentioned in the Gospels repeatedly. Jesus exercises demons. They're mentioned in Acts quite a few times as well. There's a tendency in the modern world, when you listen to modern thinkers, postmodern thinkers, influenced by the Enlightenment and materialism, that will rationalize demons in the Bible as mental illness. Now, as, just to be clear, mental illness is real. We believe that as well. It is very real. It is not the same thing as demonic influence or demonic possession, which we believe also is real and different. I just want to be very clear about that in case there's any confusion concerning what's happening in this text and what you're about to see unfold. The passage begins, Paul and Silas have left Lydia's house for the day to go to what's called a place of prayer, which is just another term for the synagogue, which was a very typical pattern for Paul whenever he went on these missionary journeys. He would always begin in the synagogues, proclaiming to the Jews there, and then he would move out from there into the streets, into the marketplace, to proclaim the gospel to whoever was in the streets and the marketplace. They're met by a slave girl who it says has a spirit of divination. It's an interesting term. I did a lot of work on this, this, this uh, term this week because it's so fascinating to me. Um, the idea of spirit here is, is one that conveys an evil spirit. 
Not a good spirit, an evil spirit. It's the Greek phrasing pneuma pathona, which is just a very fascinating phrase. Pneuma, of course, is the Greek term for spirit or wind or breath. We have uh, borrowed this word into our language. Those of you who are in construction or contract work and you use power tools powered by air, what do we call those? Pneumatic tools, right? Pneuma, pneumatic, wind, breath, spirit. When it is combined in the Greek New Testament with the term hagios, a word that means consecrated or holy, you get hagiou pneumatos, which is literally holy spirit. This is the term for the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts 16, 16, we get pneuma pathona. The word pathona is a word literally translated. It's, it's translated in your Bibles as divination, but it's literally the word for serpent or python. In fact, we have transliterated this word into our language as well, pathona, into our word python. Literally translated, the slave girl has a serpent spirit. Now, I don't think I need to tell you this. This is not the kind of spirit you want to have. This is the, like, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. It's kind of terrifying. This is essentially a, an example of a counterfeit Holy Spirit, an unholy spirit. The Holy, think about this for a minute. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament indwells a believer upon belief and can give a believer a kind of prophetic power that enables them to speak of things that have not yet come to pass, right? To prophesy. We see this happening both in, again, the Old and the New Testaments. In Acts 16, we get a counterfeit version of this, a, a spirit that embodies into a person, in this case, a slave girl, and imbues power to do the same kind of thing to a certain extent, to be able to speak of things in a fortune-telling sense so convincingly people are willing to pay a lot of money to make her owners rich. And what I want you to connect with this morning is that this is the tendency of Satan and the way that he engages people in the world to mimic or to copy God as best as he is able. So for example, let me give you a few examples of this. God is, we believe, triune in nature, that he is one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is Orthodox Christianity. We believe that the Son, Jesus Christ, in his flesh, in the incarnation, becomes man and dies a bodily death and conquers death through the power of resurrection. Amen? Again, hopefully, amen. Orthodox Christianity, just this is the gospel. We get to the book of Revelation, and what we discover is that Satan is at work attempting to mimic God in all of these ways. You don't have the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the kingdom of the beast. You have what? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, a seemingly unholy trinity. In this unholy trinity, you have a false prophet who suffers what appears to be a mortal wound, dies, in other words, and then what? Seems like he's resurrected, comes back to life all of a sudden, shockingly, to the surprise of everyone. Satan is in the book of Revelation attempting to mimic God in every way possible, but he falls short every time, which is incidentally why the number, the mark of the beast is 666. What is the number of perfection in Hebrew often connected with God? Seven. What is just short of seven? Six. And you have it in a Trinitarian form. Beast, dragon, false prophet. 
Satan attempts in every way to mimic God as best as he is able, but he falls short every time. Now in Acts 16, this is what we're seeing, a mimicry, a copy, a counterfeit of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of believers. This slave girl is demon-possessed, and she is in some ways fortune-telling, giving divinations as a result of this serpent spirit within her. But notice what she's saying, because it is not at all what you would expect a demon-possessed girl to say. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, what's wrong with this? What she's saying is true, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem off. You would expect a demon-possessed girl to say something very different than this. You would expect her to say all kinds of awful things. Coarse language, cursing God, green projectile vomit, crawling on all fours, right? I mean, she's doing none of this stuff in this passage. She's going around saying stuff that's not technically wrong. But this is where context matters. And this is where knowing the historical context of these Bible stories matters a great deal. What we discover is the demon is doing what most demons will do, which is use the truth to manipulate and mislead others. So let's break down what the girl says. We're going to use two phrases here. First, look at that phrase, most high God, the most high. She refers to Paul and Silas as servants of the Most High God. Now, what do we know about this term? For starters, it is an accurate term that is found in many places throughout the Old Testament to describe Yahweh. We first find it in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Uh, It is a description of actually a very, very interesting, don't have time to talk about him much this morning, but an interesting character in the Old Testament named Melchizedek, who is king of Salem. He comes out to greet Abram before he becomes Abraham after a battle with bread and wine, which is a shocking display of what almost seems like communion and a tithe. Again, we don't have time to go there. But, but uh, Melchizedek is described as the priest of the Most High God. The priest of the Most High God. Hebrews is going to later pick up on this to make the case that Jesus can be a high priest even though he's not a Levite because he is of an order of priests that supersedes the Levitical priest, which is the Melchizedekian priests. This Most High God descriptor in Hebrew, it's the phrase El Elyon. It's a word that means the highest God, the God who is above all things, the exalted one, the one who is above everything. And we find this term used in, in, in several places. The Psalms use it over 20 times to describe God. Daniel uses it around 12 times in his work. Uh, it's a term that accurately conveys who God is and is preferred, actually, in several places throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, which is, of course, um, in the Greek language and in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, we get the phrase, to theu, to hupsistu. Again, most high God. But I want you to consider for a moment where Paul and Silas are. What city are they in? Philippi. They're in the Philippian city, right? In Macedonia. Not a predominantly Hebrew-speaking culture. In a Greek-speaking culture. So they would not have known El Elyon as much as they would have known the term hupsistos in Greek for highest or most high. And this term in Greco-Roman culture in this particular part of the world, in Philippi, is a known term to describe God, but not the God of Israel, not the one true God, but Zeus. 
In fact, there are numerous inscriptions from this time and before this time in this area that document the worship of Zeus Hupsistos, Zeus, the most high God. So understand this, for the Jewish believer in Philippi, they're hearing this demon girl and they're, they're not really thinking much of it because it, it's not registering that anything is off. This just seems like Paul and Silas are doing their ministry. They are servants of the Most High God. They are proclaiming the way of salvation. There's nothing really off about this. But for the majority of the people there who are not Christians, who are not Hebrew speaking, but Greek speakers, who are Greco-Roman in culture, they are hearing what this girl is doing and saying, servants of the Most High God, and they're assuming these are servants of Zeus. All of these miracles, all of these signs, all these incredible things that these guys are able to do, this must be the power of Zeus at work. Very different than what Paul and Silas are trying to convey. Right. But beyond that, she speaks of them as proclaiming the way of salvation. Again, given what I just said concerning the confusion of who Paul and Silas represent, the hearers would associate that this message of salvation would lead them to the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, not Jesus Christ. The serpent spirit is very clever. What she is saying is not necessarily wrong, but it's being weaponized in a way to confuse the audience who is listening to Paul and Silas speak such that they would understand them to be talking about a false God, not the one true God. They would have wrongly associated all of the great things and the great message of Paul and Silas with Zeus, not with Yahweh. This is intentional. This is what demons do. They don't always understand this curse or defame God. Sometimes they use the name of God to mislead others into the worship of false gods. And Paul is aware of what's going on. And so he finally responds. And I love the way he responds here. Again, it's just so human of Paul to, to do what he does, verse 18. It says, and this she kept doing for many days. She was persistent. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I love that Paul just gets annoyed with this demon and performs an exorcism. <laughs> He's out there preaching his heart. I mean, he's just finally like, okay, enough. Done with the games, right? Bam, power of Jesus. And the demon is gone. Immediately the demon comes out. Now, I, I want you to understand, as powerful as demons are, and they are powerful, you do need to understand that, they are not as powerful as Christ. Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit overwhelms this slave girl and she is freed from demonic possession. Now, I want to give you a very clear warning, just as your pastor, because when we, when we deal with texts like these, there's, there's a lot of ideas that people have, and I want to make sure your ideas about this are right. My warning is this, do not play games with this stuff. Don't play around with this kind of stuff. Evangelicals specifically, we are the worst at minimizing real, weighty, important matters and actually making a big deal of things that are rather inconsequential. We have historically been more interested in criticizing pop culture and Harry Potter and then we turn around and act like heroes when there's an actual demonic presence 
that we are engaged with, we think that if we just come in there, guns blazing, throwing out the name of Jesus, we're going to win every time. That's not how it works. Demons are smarter than you, and they're more powerful than you. And simply throwing out the name of Jesus is not the best plan of action right off the bat without serious humility, prayer, and fasting. Point being or point proven in Acts 19. You have a group of itinerant exorcists who decide they're going to invoke the name of Jesus to cast out a demon. Do you remember the demon's response in that story in Acts 19? It's one of the most harrowing passages of scripture in all of the Bible. Verse 13, they say to the demon, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the evil spirit answers them in verse 15 and says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And it says immediately the evil spirit masters all seven of them, literally beats the pants off of them. They come running out of the house naked. Very unclear about how that worked out. But (laughs) this is not something you play around with. We do not play games when it comes to demonic spirits. We don't bust in with this sort of hero complex, like we're going to throw the name of the Lord out there and, and be the conqueror who sends the demon back to hell. Jesus says there are some demons in the gospel that only come out through prayer and fasting. It's a posture of deep humility, a recognition that you are dealing with something that is infinitely smarter than you are and stronger than you are. And so if you encounter something like this, you do so humbly, you pray and you fast, you rely upon the spirit of God to do the work and you do so in community, not alone. Amen? This is what I meant by that song lyric, we're going to see things we may never see again. Lord willing, you will never see this. You will not ever come into encounter with an actual demonic presence. Broken people are hard enough to deal with. You begin adding demons into the mix and it becomes a different matter altogether. We've seen so far a demonic encounter, but next we see, even better, a divine intervention. After Paul cast out the serpent spirit, the owners get really upset. Remember, she's a slave. The owners are making a ton of money off of her. Verse 19, it says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. They make a big deal about all of this. They drag them into the marketplace. They hurl accusations at them that are honestly just laced with low-key racism. Verse 20, it says, and when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing us. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah, they're disturbing our city, your honor. How so? They're being very Jewish. (laughs) It's, It's the worst argument of all time. Eventually, they have Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. And then verse 24, it says, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. And then pick up in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Pause there for a moment. Can we just admit how maddening this must have been? It's midnight. Go to bed. What are we doing here? You're singing hymns, right? If you can't win them with the gospel, annoy them with late night hymns. That's what Paul says. Verse 26. Kelsey just amen. Unbelievable. Worship pastor back there. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. 
so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now listen to me, earthquakes are real, we know that, they happen, they're a result of the fallen world that we live in. But when was the last time you heard of an earthquake literally opening every cell door in a prison and unshackling every chain of every prisoner therein? That doesn't happen. This is a divine intervention. The Lord has intervened on behalf of his servants who are there to do gospel ministry. Now, the jailer was either asleep before the earthquake took place or during the earthquake, he was knocked out. We're, we're not really sure which, but verse 27 says, when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He knew they're gonna execute me and probably my whole family when they find out that all of these prisoners have escaped under my guard. But Paul intervenes, verses 28 through 34. It says, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his household that he had believed in God. What an amazing story. Him, because of his faith, because he is born again that night in prison, goes home. Paul and Silas share the gospel with them, it says. They believe. They're all baptized. They all have a meal together to rejoice that Christ has come into their homes. This is how Christ works today as well, by the way. You affect everywhere you go if you are a believer. You, when you believe the gospel here, you're born again. You receive the Spirit. You go home. The Spirit, he goes with you. And if your family is not a church-going family, Jesus begins to spill out onto them. And the prayer is that like this jailer and his household, you and your household would come to faith as well. That it wouldn't just be you, that it would be you and your spouse or your children, either in here or in the kids or the youth ministry, learning at age-appropriate levels, whichever it is, whichever fits your family best. But this is how the faith works. There's not just a Sunday morning siloed part of your life where you come here and then put this away and then go back home and become whatever it is that you are, a business person, whatever, stay-at-home mom, fill in the blank. You are a Christian in all areas or in none. How is your faith impacting your home? That might be a really good question to ask and evaluate. But I want you to notice more than that, the commitment of Paul and Silas throughout this story. They don't seem to be overly bothered by the fact that they were just wrongfully beaten and imprisoned. They don't seem to be bothered by the fact that they were discriminated against. They were literally beaten and imprisoned for being Jewish. They don't seem to be bothered by the fact that the slave owners lied about them and slandered them to everyone. They just relentlessly are on mission. They're not drawn off sides. They could have been angry. They could have been very angry. They could have fought back. 
They could have argued more. They could have run before they were arrested. They could have run after the earthquake, but they stayed on mission. And the gospel went forth and the jailer was saved and his whole household believed and they were added into the kingdom because they remained obedient to the call of God on their life in the midst of distraction. City on a hill is in the midst of a season that is really exciting. We're growing, we're seeing people come to faith, we're seeing people be baptized, it's amazing. We're excited, we're celebrating, we're joyful. But we have to stay on mission. We have to stay focused to what God is calling us to do. There is going to be spiritual warfare. There already has been this weekend. There is going to be uh, lots of distractions that come up. There are going to be critics who come and want to tear down what God is doing here. There are going to be people who want to take personal shots at you and stop the work of the ministry and create nothing but distractions in your life. And you have to stay focused. You have to stay on mission. We cannot be distracted. We cannot be drawn off sides. We cannot let the vision of the gospel get out of focus. We have to remain about the help, hope, and healing of Jesus, regardless of what comes our way. And if we do that, if we stay the course, if we stay committed to the mission, I believe God will sustain us. He will lead us. He will intervene for us if necessary, but we must remain committed to the gospel. Because listen to me, if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. If we maintain the gospel, we have everything we need. And I believe that God will take us to places that we've never been and that we will see things we may never see again. Pray with me. Father, we are in awe of who you are and how you work, how you use your servants. Broken people, human people, frail people. To be messengers, to be your witnesses unto resurrection and eternal life. I pray, God, that, that we would confess and repent of every time we're drawn away from what you would have us focus on, the mission to be a safe place, to provide a safe process, to make disciples through rigorous study of your word and to be a witness to the world as we love one another in a way that only Christians are able to love one another. Would you help us stay focused, be about the work of the ministry, that we might see you do what only you are able to do, to fight only the battles that you are qualified to fight, and to lead your people into places that only you are able to lead us. We love you. Thank you for the testimonies of baptism again this morning. They never get old. We never grow tired of that. We never grow tired of seeing God work in the lives of his people. So would you continue, Father, through your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit, to inform and form us through your word into the image of your Son. We pray these things in his holy name that is above all names, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
God bless you. Now, if I could have your attention for a moment before you get up and leave this room, there is an ambulance outside due to a small medical emergency that took place actually during this message. Everyone is okay now, uh, but just wanted to let you know that there is that out there. So when you walk out there, don't be freaked out or alarmed. Everything is good. Praise God. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.